Hey, folks, it's a Sunday. That means it's time to jump into the Ben Shapiro Show mailbag. Reminder, you actually have to be a subscriber over at dailywireplus.com in order to have your question answered in the mailbag. Katrina says, I hate that single parents have been glorified. I myself was a single mom for several years. I had my son when I was 20. He was what motivated me to get my life together, so I didn't have to rely on government handouts for the rest of my life. I have a successful career. I've now been married for nine years. Being a single mom was extremely difficult. I wasn't happy at that time. I did the best I could. I knew it wasn't what was best for myself or my son. My question is, why is single parenthood glorified? This is honestly a, a, a great question. It drives me up a wall. The reason that it's glorified is because we're a society that refuses to actually suggest that people are sometimes responsible for their own situation. Single motherhood virtually always happens because people have made decisions and those decisions have led to consequences. Having sex out of wedlock, having sex with someone to whom you are not married carries with it the risk that you will get pregnant. And if you don't have a commitment in place, there is a high likelihood that the guy is not going to stick around under those circumstances. And there are consequences to that. But we have decided that because we're a society that wishes to shield people from the consequences of their own actions, we are now going to treat this as merely an obstacle, sort of like a disease that fell upon you. And you are therefore a hero if you, quote unquote, overcome the obstacle. So I've said this to my wife all the time. The person who is going to be featured on, on a TV show will be the single mom who put herself through medical school and then ended up as a doctor. The person who won't be featured on a TV show is my wife, who got married, went to medical school, had kids during medical school, and is now a doctor. Even though my wife is a far better example of how people should make life decisions than the woman who got pregnant out of wedlock and then made it through medical school. It's not as dramatic a story because it turns out that actually leading a life filled with good decisions makes your life less dramatic. In fact, there's a high correlation between your life being less dramatic and your life being better. But that's not what makes for good drama. And it also undermines the narrative that the left wishes to purvey, which is that bad things that happen to people are generally not your own fault. And therefore, society has a responsibility to alleviate you of the consequences of your own actions. Further note there, when you combine that with the fact that single motherhood is not equivalently numerous across all races in American society, what you end up with is the idea that single motherhood is praiseworthy and better because it is more prevalent among black Americans, for example, than white Americans or Asian Americans. Stacy says, I'm a teacher in California. My high school students were assigned to write an essay based on one of the principles in de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, arguing how we can restore or protect those principles. One of my students wrote her essay on the principle of egalitarianism. She argued the principle no longer exists in America because rights are being taken away in the United States and cited the overturning of Roe, trans people not having access to health care, and laws limiting self-expression for queer people, arguing that lawmakers only care about cis, straight white men. Despite these laughably weak and invalid arguments, I want to give feedback that might encourage her to re-examine her view. My question is, what feedback would you give to the student to plant a seed of doubt in her view? So first of all, the basic idea of egalitarianism in de Tocqueville's democracy in America is somewhat shaded. So de Tocqueville points out that egalitarianism in America has led to widespread economic growth. It has led to extraordinary durability in sort of the business sphere. It's also led to the widespread of democratic politics without significant conflict at the time that de Tocqueville's Democracy in America was written. But he also points out that egalitarianism in the sense that social ties that bind are not nearly as strong was going to lead eventually to atomistic individualism presided over by a tutelary power. That's almost a direct quote of de Tocqueville. And so de Tocqueville views of egalitarianism was significantly, I would say, less one-sided than your student's view of quote-unquote egalitarianism. It happens to be that the, the view that is being pushed by your student, which is that egalitarianism is the only value, is one that Tocqueville completely rejects. He points out that egalitarianism needs to be balanced out by the presence of social institutions that actually inculcate moral values. 
He says that in America, what makes America unique is not merely egalitarianism. It's that egalitarianism exists economically within the framework of social institutions that also purvey the idea that you have duties that correlate with those rights. Your student is very much focused on quote-unquote rights. And by rights, she means something that, that de Tocqueville never meant, which is, I guess, you have a moral right to do whatever it is that you please. De Tocqueville would not have agreed with that under any circumstances. So in the context of the essay, it just doesn't sound like a very good essay. In the context of sort of the broader question about egalitarianism, the question you have to ask is, what constitutes a fulfilled life? Right? These are the basic premises of, of politics. What system constitutes the best chance for individuals to lead a fulfilled life. So we have a system in the West that since really the Enlightenment has been based almost entirely on the idea of atomistic individualism. The only thing that matters is your feelings on a given day inside of you. That's a very bad way to achieve human happiness or human fulfillment. The reality is that one of the ways that we actually achieve human fulfillment, maybe the key way, is in the roles and responsibilities that we play to one another. And egalitarianism, like individual egalitarianism in the sense that whatever floats your boat that day is the only thing that matters, no society can be built on that. Again, the, the idea that, that rights are to be boiled down to, I can do whatever I want, or even the John Stuart Mill idea, I can do whatever I want until my fist hits you in the face. Society has to have rules of the road. Those rules of the road govern how a culture is created. A culture is how you grow up. It's how you are, it's how you are civilized as a human being. There's sort of this tabula rasa reasoning, this Rousseauian notion that if you leave people in a state of nature, that wonderful and good things then grow from that. And that's not true, actually. Anarchy, on the one hand, or tyranny on the other are the most likely outcomes. Eric says, hey, Ben, hope all is well. I've listened to Dennis Prager for a few years now on the five-minute videos, Fireside Chats, and the Exodus Seminar. I've heard him say, of all these 613 laws Jews must abide by, loving the Lord thy God has been the hardest for him to follow. After watching the Exodus Seminar and hearing him discuss this topic in depth, I was wondering which law you may have the toughest time following and why. Um, I don't have a particularly tough time loving God, uh, actually. Uh, the, the, the idea of feeling close to God, being the creator of all the things in my life and all the things that I love, I, I don't, I don't have, I'm, because love springs from gratitude and I'm extraordinarily grateful to God. So the things that I'm grateful to, I tend to love. Um, but the, the, I'm trying to think of, of what's kind of the hardest commandment. Um, and yeah, there are specific commandments that I've talked about before that, that I have kind of a hard time with. I mean, the, the way that prayer has been instituted, for example, which is now quite long, and filled with mumblings that I don't necessarily always understand. Very difficult for me, but that's, you know, again, the, the typical base on which I perform my Judaism is that if I am not finding fulfillment in a particular aspect of Judaism, the problem is probably with me, not with Judaism. I think more people should approach their own religion that way. If, if you're not finding fulfillment in a particular area of your religion, maybe it's not that the area of the religion that's been there for a couple thousand years is wrong. Maybe it's that you are not very good at it and you need to get better at that thing. Sarah says, Ben, I'm beginning to start investing and there's an outrageous amount of material out there for beginners. Stock and real estate are my two main interests. How can I narrow it down? How do you know who knows best? Can you recommend books, websites, even classes that would help a brand new baby investor get started? Huge fan. Okay, so um, I tend to be what is called a value investor. Uh, so that means that I tend to follow the same sort of dictates that Warren Buffett would would use. So there, he, his mentor was a guy named Benjamin Graham. He's written a couple of books on value investing. Uh, along with uh, a fellow named Dodd. So Graham and Dodd's sort of approach to investing is, is the one that I tend to use. My main rule for investing is I only invest in things where the logic is almost unshakable. I don't like high-risk propositions as a, as a typical matter. I, I reserve a certain percentage of my portfolio for what I would consider high-risk propositions, but that's got to be money that I'm willing to lose. Right? That, that, that's a certain percentage of my money. It's like if that money goes away tomorrow, I'm still okay. It doesn't touch my principal. I'm all right. But 
the way that I make big investments is I tend to look at the fundamentals of companies. So for example, I recently invested in a, in a, a company called Oramed, right? I'm, I'm now on the board of that company. The reason I invested in that company is because essentially the stock price was trading at half of the cash holdings of the company. So that seemed like a pretty easy bet right there. And the management of the company seemed pretty good. They just flamed out on a phase three trial on a drug that they were trying. And that meant that they'd been left over with a bunch of cash. They had like $150 million in the bank, but their market cap, meaning the stock value, like all the stock, all, all the stock shares times the value of the stock was trading about half of that $150 million. So what that meant is if I had theoretically bought all of the stock of the company, then I would have been able to liquidate the entire cash holdings of the company and just take home the money, right? So that wasn't what was going to happen, obviously. That's not actually the way the stock market typically works. But I was buying into a company that had a very solid rate of return that was undervalued. I like undervalued things. This is true in real estate also. Also, I tend to invest for the long haul. I don't like short swings. So I'm not somebody who tends to pick a piece of real estate and then I'm like, I'm gonna flip this thing in a year. That's not the way I see things. I, I, I believe that my income is what I'm supposed to live on. And then everything that I'm doing is, re, is rooted in the magic of compound interest and the idea that when you invest in a property, you're holding it for 10, 15, 20 years. I've said this to everybody. Like my producers come to me sometimes, like I'm thinking buying a house. And the first question I ask them is how long do you want to own it? If you want to own it for a year, I can't guarantee you're going to make a return. If you're going to own it for like 10 years, the chances that you're going to lose significant money on your house in 10 years are really low, if only through the, the rate of inflation because the rate of inflation will generate higher prices on your home over the course of time. So you know, if you're looking at real estate, I would look into areas with demographic growth. So that would typically be Sunbelt and, uh, and Southern states right now. That's particularly if you're looking at residential. I think commercial real estate right now is kind of a bad bet, given the fact that it has not fully recovered even from the pandemic and we're moving toward a more move out of the office type mentality. When it comes to stocks, I would specifically look at the fundamentals of companies. Everybody sort, sort of wants to you know, throw money at a stock. And I just don't see, you're not going to beat the market that way. The, the market is very efficient when it comes to the aggregation of all knowledge about the entire stock market. But there are market inefficiencies in the short term with regard to, say, small companies that nobody has spent a lot of time investigating. So dig down into the company. See if there's something there that's that in, in the bones of it that looks good to you. Benjamin says, what exactly does the Messiah even look like in the 21st century? I called into your radio show a few years ago, asked about Isaiah 53. You mentioned the modern Jewish interpretation. The other night I was thinking about that and wondered, as a modern Orthodox Jew living in 2023, I assume you're still waiting for the Messiah. What exactly does the Messiah even look like in the 21st century for religious Jews? Okay, so as I've said, according to Maimonides, there are basic prerequisites for what constitutes sort of the messianic age. So the ingathering of the exiles, good case that's already happened. The rebuilding of the third temple on top of the Temple Mount, that has not yet happened. Uh, the reestablishment of a Davidic kingship, right? Th those are the three major elements to the to the end of the the final exile. Whoever accomplishes that will be the Messiah. But it's really, so, but the Messiah is a human figure in Judaism. The idea, as in Christianity, that the Messiah is actually God Himself or the Son of God or anything remotely like that, that doesn't exist in sort of Jewish circles. He's, he's more of a political figure than a than a figure that descends from the sky uh, or is. Um, or is, God, or is any sort of manifestation of the deity. Gina says, Hey, Ben, my husband and I are the only conservatives in both of our very liberal families. They are Democrat through and through, no matter how far left and crazy that party has become. In a conversation with a relative, I was told by her that transgender movement today is no different than when women started wearing pants back in the day. Well, I mean, it is because women wearing pants is not quite the same thing as a woman wearing a d but you know, 
I know this is nonsense. Could not make my point with her. If you could help me with a concise, articulate argument in response to this dumb comment, I would greatly appreciate it. Okay, sure. A woman wearing pants is still a woman. A woman wearing a dick claiming she is a man is also still a woman. But that proposition is the one that is controversial, apparently. If I say a woman who wears pants is still a woman, then you're like, yeah, of course. If I say a woman who sews a fake penis to herself and then calls herself a man is still a woman, you're like, bigot. I'm going to need your math. That's the argument. Adam says, hey, Ben. I love the show and how you speak truth despite the culture spitting on you for it. I had a question about moving across the country as you did. My family and I currently live in Colorado. I'm thinking of moving East Tennessee or one of the Carolinas. Do you think it's a good time to move considering the state of the economy? I work construction. I can obtain a class B construction license. My wife is a stay-at-home mom. I have two daughters. We plan to homeschool. We mainly want an affordable place to live in a good church community. Thanks for all you do. I don't think it's a bad time to move. I mean, in terms of, in terms of buying a house, the question is, can you afford one? If you're looking for a downturn in the real estate market, like now's not an amazing time to buy given the fact that the interest rates are so high on the mortgages. But there's a case to be made that in the next six months, you're going to start to see those interest rates decline as the market softens. So I think over the course of the next year or two is, is a good time to buy. But you can go somewhere and rent. You can go somewhere like South Carolina or Tennessee and, and find a place to rent while you get a job and really get situated. And Joe says, hey, Ben, love the show. Without referencing God or religion, how would one best argue against legalizing gay marriage? I understand gay marriages cannot produce children and so are not as good for society as marriages that can produce children. However, if this is the only argument given, should we not also make childless heterosexual marriages illegal? As a Christian, I think gay marriage is wrong. I struggle to respond to this line of reasoning without having to admit that male-female marriages without children should likewise be disincentivized. Thanks for all you do. Well, okay, so traditionally speaking, the reason the male-female marriages that were infertile were not disincentivized is because you didn't know they were infertile until after you attempted the, the act. If you're talking about like old people getting married, the men and women who are elderly getting married, the answer is society doesn't really care about those marriages in the same way that it would about like a young, healthy couple getting married, traditionally speaking. But there is nothing inherently in the system that suggests that a woman couldn't have a baby. I mean, what, what you're talking about there is a, is a flaw in the biology, not an inherent part of the biology. So the inherent part of a woman's biology is that she can have a baby. If there is a failure, then she can't have a baby, which is why infertile women are very upset about it. Whereas an infertile man, who, you know, can't conceive a child in his non-existent womb is not upset about it. This is how the organ normally works. And the, the, I, I've never understood the argument that infertility within male-female marriage is somehow a rebuttal to the definitional infertility of male-male or female-female dyads. That, that's nonsensical. It's, it's literally the equivalent of saying that because some engines, some ignition keys don't work in cars, that you, you, you try the ignition and the ignition's broken. Therefore, we should, that using ignitions generally is the same as sticking, sticking the key in, you know, in the muffler. Like, it, that makes no sense. Where you are speaking about definitional dyads that produce children versus definitional dyads that do not produce children. And just because there are exceptions to the rule doesn't make it not the rule. In the same way, I mean, you see the same arguments that are being made about transgenderism on sort of a generalized level. It would be like, what is a woman? You're like, well, a woman is a is a human female, right? A large zygote producing human female. That, that, that is that is the the definition is that the reproductive cell is large in in the female of the species. And you're like, well, there are some women who don't have that. Are they not women? It's like, no, they're women, but they have a flaw. Yes. I mean, the answer is yes. You, you haven't changed the definitions. Finding finding flaws or exceptions does not change the rule. I'm always annoyed by this kind of stuff. Oh, well, there's a, I found an exception. There, there, name a rule without an exception. There are very few of them. doesn't mean the rule doesn't exist. It's like saying to your kid, well, you know, you shouldn't run. You have this argument with your kid all the time because kids are dumb. 
You said your kid don't run into traffic. You get hit by a car. He said, well, I'm not. Maybe I won't. You're sure it's true. Maybe you won't, but probably you will. Or maybe maybe 90% of the time you won't. But that one time you do, it's real bad. Like arguing based on exceptions is, is the dumbest form of argumentation. All righty, we've reached the end of this mailbag. So we'll see you here tomorrow. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is the Ben Shapiro Show.